And with that lovely noise, we are now recording. Kick-ass. Blob. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, special episode number seven, for February 15th, 2009. Ah! Warning. This episode is going to contain much silliness, probably profanity, adult content, and assorted, well, madness. What the fuck are you talking about? Kitty, get off that donkey! You have been warned. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Metamore City Feedback Show. I am Chris Lester. I am J. Daniel Sawyer, author of the Antithesis series and of Sculpting God. I'm Kitty Nickian, uh, a random voice for Antithesis. Random. The, yes, random. I play random characters. Such as? Kaboombla! Aha! Kitty Nakian, the voice of Kaboombla from a future edition of Antithesis from a parallel universe in which Lewis Carroll is God. Oh, d- dear heavens. <laughs> that is a horrifying <laughs> mental image. Lewis Carroll in charge of anything, including heavy machinery, is a scary thought. But you, he was an engineer, didn't you? Don't you remember that the moan wa- the moan wraths outweigh everything? No, I didn't remember that. That's yeah, from Jabberwocky. Mm. I just heard they outgrabe something. Oh, sorry, they outgrabe. You're right. Yes, the moan wraths outgrabe. All right, so we are here answering your calls, answering your emails, answering your Twitter messages and blog posts, and getting into all kinds of fun little rabbit trails along the way. Mostly rabbit trails. Mostly rabbit trails. This is authorial therapy for persistent stalkeriness engaged upon by fans. Yes, but we like our stalker fans. We do. Let's see. What have you got there? Oh, let's see. I've got um, Magenta Sumatra wrote in, uh, though he or she signs his or her name A. I'm guessing Magenta is probably a woman's name, but... Uh, Well, it does have a very... uh... Yeah, okay. She's got a your kink is not my kink quote at the end of it, which is from a female's perspective. So let us take a risk and say that Magenta is either female or wants to be. Okay. I just wanted to let you know that I absolutely love the Metamore City podcast. I am one of those people that is about one or five years behind in finding out about this fabulous world. I've been an audiobook listener forever, at least 20 years, but I found this world, the world of patio books, about eight months ago. You are amazing, and I really enjoy your writing. I enjoy the gentle pushing of the envelope, not only of the criminal elements and scientific world, but also the sexual realm. I wouldn't call that gentle pushing by any... It's gentle pushing in the same way that the last two minutes of a birth are gentle pushing. <laughs> I would like to suggest that you pimp yourself more. Your humble attitude is admirable, but you are really good. I mean, really good. I have listened to 15 episodes, but once I found your podcast, I have been listening nonstop. Thank you for sharing your wonderful gift, Hopefully we will cross paths, but until then, I will be listening, A. Oh, thank you very much, A. That is really nice feedback. Does nice things for my ego. Um, 
Trust me when I tell you that being humble is not one of my personality defects. I just try to ramp down my raging egocentrism when I am in my public persona because it's irritating as hell for everybody, including me. (laughs) I'm one of those people who's got a superiority complex and then has an inferiority complex about the superiority complex. So imagine what Scott Sigler would be like if he was a Smurf rather than only five feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) Chris Lester is Papa... uh, is. Chris Lester is Scott Sigler as Brainy Smurf. That is a terrifying in- mental image. Yeah, thank you for that nightmare fuel, Dan. <laughs> nightmare fuel is what I'm all about. Oh, dear heavens. I'm, I'm totally fucking with you. You know that, right? <laughs> Speaking of grade A bullshit artists. <laughs> continue on. Kitty, read the next email, please. Someone named Sunshine says, can't wait for Act 3 either. Everything's going to hit the fan, and I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Ah, yes. Sunshine is one of my staunchest supporters on the metamorcity.com blog. Um, Whenever people are commenting on there and raising questions about my choices and how I've put things together in the story, she invariably is coming to my defense. So thank you, Sunshine. I'm glad that you're... Sticking with me and uh, that you're looking to see how this is all going to pan out. I hope you enjoy it. When everything hits the fan, you're going to need a lot of Lysol. (laughs) Okay, this is a comment from the forums. I got to put up forums. They're nice. Yeah. This is from Majo Gray. I have a question, and it may seem silly, but it's one that I have pondered over a number of times, even so far as to want to call it in, but then chicken out because it might be too silly. Well, if you've been listening to these feedback shows, Marco, <laughs> you should know that Too Silly doesn't exist. What exactly is the meaning behind the title, Making the Cut? I don't fully grasp why the story is named that, and on whose story arc it is meant to point to. Oh, and another question that might be spoilerific. Will Daniel have to own up to slash be confronted with what happened at the terminal when he healed what's-his-name? I'm ashamed, but I can't for the life of me recall it. Victor. And the when he healed Victor, who then went and killed two of Daniel's friends. To answer your second question first, the news about what Daniel did is going to come out, and that is something that he will have to deal with. He's been suffering the consequences of that choice ever since he made it, and you can see in the uh, last few episodes how some of the fallout from that is starting to affect Danny as well as Daniel. I was going to say the most recent two or three episodes, that's been a rising theme. Yeah. One of the things that comes through throughout Making the Cut is that holding on to secrets is toxic. And you're going to see more and more how the attempts of characters to cover up the things that they have done and sort of mitigate what people know about themselves you know, any of these attempts within this ostensibly open society that the telepaths have to restrict information invariably lead to bad things happening. I can tell you grew up in the aftermath of Watergate. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't specifically thinking of Watergate, but it's something that if you look at the way that our society has generally been going, you see the toxic effect of secrets all over the place. People keeping secrets is usually a bad thing because 
most of the time the keeping of the secret causes much more damage than the secret coming out and people being honest with each other actually would. It'll be interesting to see how you deal with the demarcation between secrets and privacy. Mm. Because you've also set up a situation in which there is no privacy and it's obviously a bit of a problem for Mm. the people in that situation. Yeah, I mean, the characters, one of the things about the the telepath society, the reason why they're even capable of keeping secrets from each other is because they all recognize that there are some parts of their lives that they don't want broadcast to the rest of the hive mind. And so people are able to set up these walls that other people within the collective respect and say, okay, if you don't want to show me that, then you're not going to show me that. But the end result of that is it makes it easy for people to hide things that they shouldn't be hiding, uh, both for their own good and for everyone else's. As far as the title of Making the Cut is concerned, it's a sports analogy, which I figured was appropriate given um, Daniel's background in athletics, meaning the idea of making the cut uh, for a team, of being tested to see whether or not you will qualify to play. Obviously, at the start of the, the game, at the start of the novel, Daniel does not make the cut with the Psy Collective to be part of the, an active part of their society. And so everything that he's doing throughout the rest of the story is either trying to change the rules of the game so that he will be qualified, or it's to deal with the consequences of the choices that he made in order to find that place for himself. It's also a part of the Summer Cell storyline. The whole process of them having to go through these tests that the elders put before them of, okay, you are a member of our society, but you have to do this in order to maintain your position. You have to go on this mission that you don't want to go on and put yourself in harm's way, basically, in order to be considered qualified active member of the society. That's what Brian and his people have to earn in order to earn their place. To summarize the summary mm-hmm. of the summary, yes, everyone's making the cut somehow or trying to. Yeah, or trying to. Okay, uh, next feedback. Um, this is from uh, Paul Herring. Hey, Paul. As always, excellent work with the podcast. The Danny Daniel scene was incredible and made a very long, snow-covered commute that much more fun. Really liked the nod to Nathan Lowell. Thanks to you and your team for all the hard work. Ah, thank you. And he's, of course, referring to the uh, moment when Daniel and Danny pass off control of their body from one to the other in Chapter 25, I believe that was. How's that a nod to Nathan Lowell? Remember, I Mm -hmm. had to stop listening to Solar Clipper... Yes. Because I needed the time. <laughs> All operations normal, Master Shirabi. You oh, have the con. yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a brief little nod that works in context, but yes, it was cool. a nod. I love Nathan's stuff. Nathan so. rocks. All right, next one. Okay, this one is from Hawk Hunt, who just started feeding back to Antithesis, too. So I'm, I'm Ah, liking... yes, our Australian listener. I'm liking this guy. Hi, Chris. Long-time listener here. Subscribed since the beginning, and I just thought you should know that your feedback episodes are some of the best I have listened to, and I've heard a lot. I really enjoyed the discussion about the background of Metamore City and the characters who live there. Thank you for all the effort you and the others involved put into this production. I await the next episode anxiously. P.S. When was this attempt at Strine? I seem to have missed it, and it sounds worth a laugh. Uh, my attempt at Strine was something that I did at the end of one of the uh, 
earlier chapters when Governor called in and left his feedback for me. And uh, this was before we were doing the actual formal feedback shows. And so I was just kind of tacking in my mm-hmm. commentary on the ends of the episodes. Right. And uh, I had made an attempt at answering in the Australian oh, yes. backwoods <laughs> accent. You know, Strine is what they call their hillbilly Strine, accent. Yeah. Strine. Yes. Oh, I gotcha. Crocodile Dundee accent. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Hawk Hunt. I'm pleased to have you guys on board. It's very cool that uh, I'm able to reach people all over the world in this format. And doing these feedback episodes is occasionally fun. Usually. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next feedback is from uh, Darren, who says, Love the podcast, by the way. The quality of the show is stunning, but more than that, you tell a damn good story with really interesting characters. Among other things, I'm interested in seeing if Daniel's involvement with Brian's friend's deaths come out. I wish you had a PayPal button so I could pay you for this. Oh, well, thank you very much. You do have a PayPal button, don't you? Nope, I have. I, did. I am not collecting donations for myself. Uh, if anybody wants to show their appreciation for the show, I'm asking that you donate to the Arise High School uh, Science Fund, arisescience.chipin.com, I believe it is. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But uh, we have an ongoing fun drive there so that I can have the resources that I need to get the equipment that my students will need. And it's all tax deductible. So if you want to give back, that's how to do it. It's all tax deductible. We're fairly incorruptible. We're sailing on the wide accountancy. Monty Python. (laughs) I know. That one I actually do recognize. I love that. Okay, subject, goofballs. From Mark at halibut.com. Just finished listening to the feedback episode. You three are damn goofballs in a good way. Yes, we are. Us? No. Loving MCP, one of the most well-done podcasts I've ever heard. The writing, performances, production, everything. Well done. Do carry on, won't you? Anyway, keep up the great work. Thanks for everything, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Yes, we are definitely going to continue on bravely soldiering into the future as long as I still have a voice to record and fingers to type and a brain to write stories with. You know, if you started getting those mixed up, you could get in some serious trouble, but you'd make a hell of a lot of money doing porn podcasts. Oh, gods. Porn podcasts? Take no billets. Oh, right. Okay. That's erotica. You say potato. Says the man who's writing erotica a la carte next month. <laughs> Which you guys can find at erotica a la carte.com. Yes, and you can vote on it even. Oh my god, I'm going to have everybody telling me what kind of sex to write about. That's right. Vote for comedy! Vote for comedy! No! No! Yes, comedy, funny sex, last episode, uh, multitasking. Uh, that is some of the funniest and hottest stuff I have ever heard on a podcast. <laughs> Philippa Ballantyne is getting better with every episode. Which is incredible on its own. Yes. She says with the huge tracts of land gesture. <laughs> Kitty is now assaulting Dan. It's domestic abuse. Woohoo! <laughs> Use the flogger next time. Ooh, we have the flogger. Yes, the flogger. <laughs> the flogger hangs on the living room wall to chastise naughty guests and voice actors with. Hmm. I have to come. <laughs> remind me to come over the next time that you're recording with Ms. Calendar. 
I'll just have Kitty direct you next time you're recording Greg sing. No, not that way. <laughs> oh, promises, promises. Okay. <laughs> okay, and here's everybody's favorite uh, feedbacker, Patty Heaney. Hey, Patty. Welcome back. Greetings. Wow, can these feedback episodes get any more awesome? I was laughing so hard at the first one, I think I've lost a few dozen kilos. Unfortunately, poor health in real life will limit my contributions to the next feedback show to one sober email. My liver is off at yoga camp and should hopefully be back in time for your next podcaster cabal gathering. Best of luck to your liver. We'll send a card. I hope to accompany each drunken episode with a care package of yummies. So I'd appreciate it if you all got together and had a shared studio out there. Pull your resources to get each other on schedule, have a dedicated space to work on your recordings, and most of all, save me postage. Those care packages can get heavy. I'm happy to report that I'm still fanatically in love with the Metamorian experience. However, this last episode, Chapter 24, in which we learn Lena's backstory, has me a little more confused than usual. Malcolm the Vampire Stormtrooper is some sort of investment back here. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm is played by TD0013, who's one of the heads of the 501st Stormtrooper Legion. Ah, and also okay. can be found with his own podcast at adpov.net. That's a different point of view. A look at the Star Wars universe through the eyes of a stormtrooper. Presumably, he's even more evil than the investment vampires of this world, but I digress. <laughs> Ardvalos makes a lot of money, I'm guessing, investing in companies, ideas, and resources that seem to have economic potential. So, why would he throw away a mine like Lena's? I get that she's that she insulted him, and that blood-sucking men are even more egomaniacal than the most. <laughs> but if she helped develop a new bit of medical technology, she's a heck of an asset. Of course, I could be reading too much and into the reading a medical book comment. Still, brainwashing Lena to the point he did strikes me as wasteful. Even the army recognizes its soldiers as being highly valuable pieces of equipment. Ask any bigger picture zombie. Brains should be kept around. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot more questions I'd love to ask, but since most involve how's it going to end, I think I'll just end it there. Thanks for the awesome, and keep on laughing that evil, evil laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have to read how, how Patty ends her email. Patty he- Heaney, a.k.a. Miriam, Scoffleet, Seamstress of Blue, etc. Yeah, Chris, you really have just three fans with lots of different names. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. As far as sending care packages, go ahead and send them either to me or to Dan and Kitty's address. It doesn't matter to me um, because there is no freaking way that I'm going to eat an entire box of those goodies all by myself because I would weigh 400 pounds. And thank you very much for sending them in. They are so good. (laughs) I love those cookies. Anyway, um, as far as... I was giving you shit for, for that the other night, the Malcolm thing. Who was giving me shit for me? It? You were. Remember? About which part? About uh, Malcolm brainwashing Lena that much and then tossing her back when she didn't break. Mm. It, it's something out of the evil overlord's handbook, and I know it's going to come back to be his undoing. <laughs> anyway, here's the thing about um, what's going on here. Number one, her intellect is still intact. We will see this in chapter 26, which is coming out this weekend. Her brains are all still there. What Malcolm broke was her will, her willingness to use her faculties and capabilities for her own sake, for her own advancement. He took her and broke her and turned her into a tool that 
never feels complete and whole unless she's working on behalf of someone else, on behalf of a master or mistress. There are several reasons for doing this, which have to go into the psychology of the blood bond and its effects on both the vampire who's feeding and on the thrall who is donating. The blood bond is an extremely intimate psychic act which, in which all of the emotions that are being experienced by the thrall get fed into the brain of the vampire or the mind of the vampire who's, who's receiving the blood. This has some serious long-term effects if the individual in question is traumatized. And there have been many vampires who have driven themselves mad and have completely lost control of their higher faculties because the torture and horror and um, grief and all of the, the shame and negative emotions of the victims just piled up to the point where their their psyche snapped and they couldn't take it anymore. There's a limit to how much horror a person is uh, capable of receiving about themselves before they snap. And so one of the ways that they prevent themselves from going insane, the smarter ones, is that they either take Morgan's tactic, which is that they form serious emotional bonds with the people who they they feed from, and they don't feed from somebody without their consent and without a, a sort of mutual respect interchange going on there. Or they take Malcolm's tactic, which is to turn the person in question, the thrall in question, into a vessel who views the the master as being the source of all good things. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a very natural course of events. Right, and Malcolm takes full advantage of this, and which is one of the reasons why he's able to stay as powerful as he is. And if you look at the the vampires in Metamore City, the, the... smarter ones will always be doing something to make sure that their thralls stay nice and happy, that there is not a negative, destructive mentality going on. They are kind to their thralls for a very good reason, because it keeps them themselves healthy alive. and alive, healthy, and sane. You know, if they don't, they tend to either go feral or the guilt gets so much that they go and take a walk in the sunlight and they don't last very long. Braddock is still a fairly young vampire, which is one of the reasons why he still is engaging in the sort of cruelty and degradation that he engages in. By the way, anyone who um, is intending to write Metamore fanfic um, and wants to write a comedic Metamore fanfic piece, it just occurred to me that a great... uh a great plot device for a comedic short metamorph fanfic piece would be about a vampire who gets sick of walking around in the dark and so buys himself a sunblock company. <laughs> a sunblock company. Yeah, sunblock will not help you if you are a vampire in Metamore City. It is true that only direct sunlight will fry them, uh, but in if they are in indirect sunlight, they will be weak and sluggish and will not you know have any of their nifty domination yeah, but with powers. all with all that magic floating around and all the tech someone's got to develop vampire sunblock <clears throat> yes and then they will probably be destroyed in a terrorist raid by the psi collective <laughs> but anyway um in terms of wastefulness lena is her primary skill 
is as an organizer of people and as a communicator. She was the CEO of Seraph Diagnostic Solutions for a reason and was not the head researcher. She knows enough about the world of medicine to be conversant with it and to understand at least the in general the sort of stuff that Timothy's research team was working on. But she is primarily there to interact with the business people, to get investors and backers, to represent them to the media, and to keep people organized and keep people happy. That's where her strengths are. And the truth is that Malcolm has a lot of people with those strengths, being a man of business. The uh, capacity to organize and manage people is not something that he had a particular shortage of in his organization. So from his perspective, serving his own short-term lust for having a creature that is unique and special and beautiful under his power, that was more of more value to him than keeping her around as a useful CEO. One of the things that is true about vampires as well as humans is that people will engage in suboptimal decisions for the sake of indulging their appetites. You know, you see it in people who will eat things that they shouldn't eat because they enjoy the taste. They will drink more than they should because they like the feeling of it. They will put things into the mind-altering substances into their bodies that are really not very healthy for them because they like the way that it makes them feel. Uh, and they will spend more money than they should on frivolities because they enjoy the experience of shopping or they enjoy the doodads or what have you. Malcolm collects people. His interest is in taking people who are beautiful, exotic, unusual, interesting, and strong-willed and turning them into puppets for his will. It's the thing that... that It's his kink. It's his kink. It's the thing that strokes his ego. He likes to be in control, and he likes for people who are very strong and self-assertive to recognize him as God and to submit themselves completely to his authority and to his, his control over their lives, because deep down he believes that the world is a very disorderly place that would be much better if he were in charge of it. And so he does whatever he can on the small scale to take people who are running amok and doing their own things and bring them under his aegis, under his sense of the way things ought to be, which is with him at the top. So, yes, in an absolute sense, it is wasteful, but it serves his emotional needs, as twisted as they are. So, thank you again for writing in, Patty, and we are going to take a quick break here for some promos, and we'll be right back. Philippa Ballantyne has taken you to worlds of flesh and horror, walked you through Renaissance England and the realm of the Fae. But now she takes you somewhere no patio book 
has ever been. New Zealand. Step into the alternate history of Aotearoa, where magic and madness go hand in hand, where ancient power threatens to tear the world apart, where a reluctant sorceress is our last hope. Visit weatherchild.com or subscribe to iTunes. Hey there, folks. We are back. And uh, during the break, Dan and I were having an interesting discussion about uh, Malcolm Ardvalos and his little uh, conflict between his short-term goals and his long-term goals that... uh, I think deserves to be recorded. So Dan, why don't why don't you set up what you were saying? Well, I was saying that I was um I was kind of bristling a bit as you were um deriding Ardvalos for his for the short-term side of his personality, mm-hmm. particularly after you had just set up that he's a very strategic thinker and takes into account his long-term goals before he goes and indulges his short-term desires. Mm-hmm. So it seemed both a little uh, contradictory and also presupposes a moral universe where the gratification of short-term desires is illegitimate by virtue of the fact that they're short-term, mm. which I don't agree with, and at, at least to some measure I know you don't agree with either. Yeah, and there is there is some balance that is necessary. I mean, you can't live on tomorrow's bread. Right. I mean, you have to have some uh, willingness to engage your own short-term desires um, and keep those in balance with your long-term goals, or you're going to end up um, completely empty and soulless. Malcolm is able to indulge his short-term desires with Lena, his short-term appetites, because he takes his long-term goals into account and judges that her long-term value is not as as important to him as Mm -hmm. her short-term value as a plaything. I think part of my coming down on him harshly for his short-term goals in this case is because his short-term goals are sadistic and manipulative and right. just generally abhorrent. Well, yeah, yeah. But that's <laughs> that's not necessarily because they're short-term. That's no. because they're his goals. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I was also thinking about um, how he, he works so well in Metamore City. And I was thinking how he wouldn't work as a bad guy in Antithesis. Because the moral universes are so different. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, Metamore City has a very... Um, un- underneath the um, the layers of ambiguity and everybody... And no one's quite a black hat or a white hat. It has underneath it a very classical sort of narrative morality. You know, good. You know, the people looking for power are evil. Um, the people who are fighting the people who are trying to gain power are good. That kind of thing. You know, it's, it's an Americanized kind of Catholic morality. I'm not sure whether I should be insulted by that. It, it, it fits very well with, with, with your character in your, in your moral universe and that sort of thing. And it's not an insult. It's something that worked really well for Tolkien. His was a Britishized Catholic morality. A little bit less individualistic than the Americanized Catholic morality. But the, the same basic, the very classical good versus evil type of underlayer. Which I think probably has something to do with the fact that it is an epic fantasy universe that's mm-hmm. been carried forward into a modern era. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're going... the One of the, the key staple elements of epic fantasy is that you have true good and true evil that are at war with each other. Right. 
And one of the things that I try to do in Metamore City is that the fault line between the two frequently runs down the center of every individual. Right. Um, in the moral universe of antithesis, the, um, the, the, the underlayer is, is far more situational. It's, uh, the focus is much more ethical and much less moral. If if I can make the if I can make the distinction without being silly about we it, we may need to clarify those terms because for me, being a gamer, the moral axis is good versus evil, and the ethical axis is law versus chaos. Okay, well, I'm thinking uh, a moral axis like good versus evil versus an ethical axis, which would be right versus wrong at the moment. You know, what's right versus wrong in this situation? Mm-hmm. I'm not much concerned with good versus evil in antithesis because I think. My own personal moral orientation is that um, what is good and what is evil is determined in retrospect a lot of times by Hmm. outcomes. I'm not a thoroughgoing utilitarian, but I'm yeah, a, I was going to say you're you're drifting a little close to the ends justify the means. No, here. no, no, no. The ends do justify the means, but it's the achieved. But but I would restate it saying the achieved ends bear witness to the morality of the means employed. Oh. Once you take into account all of the knock-on effects, you know the intended ends rarely are justified by uh, the chosen means. By the chosen means, but the achieved ends always bear witness to the um, to, to the means employed to achieve them. You just don't normally achieve the glorious the glorious superpower built on atrocities that in a lasting fashion. And the other aspect of that is that the outcomes of most human decisions are very complex. And so it can be difficult to judge which of the outcomes are the result of the implemented means and which are the result of, you know, confounding factors. Right. But um, in any given situation, a basic uh, element of uh, situational ethics um, is the exercise in thinking about murder. Right. When one person kills another person... The person that does the killing is asserting their fundamental right to exist over the other person's fundamental right to exist. Right. They're enforcing it by force of arms, and they're usually enforcing that by cheating. It's not, you know, I think you shouldn't exist and I should, therefore, because we have limited food, I'm going to kill you and eat you with my bare hands. (laughs) It's, I know where the guns are kept, or um, I've studied martial arts. I've I've prepared in advance to cheat at this vital moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Or I have arranged so that all these other people are on my side. Right. But, but, but keeping, keeping the example simple, you've got two individuals. One okay. person kills another. Mm-hmm. Is that a moral act? Is that an ethical act? In well, the sense of does it have moral weight or ethical weight? No. Is the killing an ethically correct decision? Is the person doing the killing in the right or in the wrong? Well, that depends on a whole lot of confounding influences. Exactly. But that would be true even in Metamore City. The actions that are engaged in by the various characters have varying degrees of Mm -hmm. uh, moral value depending upon the circumstances in which they're used. But in Metamore City, you have underlying it two sets of opposing interests, one of which are thoroughly aligned with good and life and light and the creator of your universe, mm. and the other of which are are interested in darkness and chaos and the opposition to the creator of your universe. In Antithesis, every one of the major actors has a set of interests that is completely credible. 
mm-hmm. on their own. Cassie wants to rid the moon of what she sees as the evil force that created the kind of world that she had to grow up in. Mm-hmm. Bill Shelley for whatever reasons that we don't know yet, is campaigning to keep a hostile power from being in the position of wiping out all life on Earth with very little effort. Mm -hmm. Doug Reeves is interested in the long-term destiny of the human race Mm -hmm. and getting getting humanity separated from the cradle and pushed out into the stars. Mm -hmm. Joss is interested in preserving his own skin which is the most basic form of good that anyone first comes to understand doesn't mean that it's always the best form of good but it's one of the most basic moral goods is survival Mm. and he's also got a lot of other ideas about how power should be used and not used that he's operating under all of them have agendas that are not just ethical from their own points of view but in an abstract global sense are good things that they're trying to achieve Mm-hmm. Which one of them is right? Which one of them is wrong? And the problem is that they are all right. Mm-hmm. And what makes the characters good and bad is how they pursue the ends and how they deal with who they become in order to pursue the ends, which I think is eventually the more important question. Yeah. It's it's interesting that you're seeing a very um, strong um, light versus dark warfare going mm-hmm. on in Metamore City because I haven't really put that into the fore very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, in, in the, the broad global sense, the divine force that the Ecclesiasts worship as Eli and that the Marias worship as Iluvatar exists and the adversary exists. Mm-hmm. But as the question remains and is not answered in the stories of whether these individuals are actually, for lack of a better term, God and Satan, or if they are simply fragments of a higher power that once existed and is now trying to sort itself out. Mm -hmm. Um, The universalist faiths do play a major role in the psyche of the universe, and I Mm -hmm. deliberately do not answer um, which view is the correct one. One of the things that I've played with a lot in the stories is the idea that creatures that are typically thought of as being inherently dark or wicked are not necessarily so, and that creatures that are painted as being inherently virtuous are not necessarily no, no, so. No, no, and you do a very good job with keeping... Like, like I said, the level on which the story happens is a very interesting interplay of Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. But maybe underneath is the wrong word. I'm wondering, I think what I'm seeing in Metamore City is the sense that morality is built into the universe from the get-go, that good and evil are part of the fabric of the universe. Mm. You know, and it makes makes perfect sense for your, for your influences, both mm-hmm. uh, cultural and literary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tolkien had that built top down. The universe is created good and then it's uh, shattered by, by Melkor. Mm-hmm. Christianity, same sort of thing, created good, shattered by Satan. Mm-hmm. It, but you've got um, the moral universe of Metamore City is top down. It's the the goodness flows from from on high, hmm. whereas the moral universe of Antithesis is bottom up. It's evolutionary. Mm. You have competing interests, none of which are inherently good or inherently evil, all of which have their good and bad points. Mm-hmm. And the ones that win wind up shaping how the moral universe develops. 
Yeah, I can see that. Um, certainly there are elements in Metamore's backstory that have been very much instances of, of what you could call top-down morality. The most striking example being uh, when Mariah bitch-slapped the gods down to earth uh, for their daring to treat humanity and the other mortal races as their playthings. Um, that was a moral decision on her part that was very much driven by her contact with whatever it was that she interacted with that gave her the power to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, to a certain extent, the gods set themselves up for it because they created her to be a weapon and then she turned on them. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And so there is there is that aspect of something you know in the way that the universe is set up acted in judgment on those who tried to exert their will Mm -hmm. um over others and i think that that's that is a recurring theme in metamore city that when you try to exert power and command and authority that is unasked for over other people it always comes back to bite you Mm -hmm. And we see that with the, uh, the with the vampires. We see that with the elders and the resentment that they're that's brewing among the collective. Mm-hmm. And we see that with the gods themselves. And, but at the same time, you can also look at different aspects of the moral universe of Metamor, where there are different groups who want very different things that are com- completely reasonable and and understandable. You know, the Psy Collective. I do not consider them heroes in this this world um they are certainly not completely morally virtuous and the some of the actions that they take are just plain wrong mm-hmm. but at the same time their goals are very understandable they are working for what they believe is the preservation of the evolutionary heritage of humanity they believe that they are the start of something better that they are what's next and so they will do whatever they feel like they have to do in order to preserve that heritage. And this leads them to do some things that are not entirely good. Right. The vampires believe that lesser races need to be um, shepherded, for lack of a better mm. word. Um, they are control... They're the shadows. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they, are the, they are control freaks, and they believe that they are the, the top predators who help to make the rest of the the mortal race is stronger and more vital through their existence. And it's kind of interesting how they've they started out as the shadows and they are sort of becoming the, the Vorlons. Yeah, that's interesting. Because they, and I think it has a lot to do with the the replacement of Lilith by Talia. Um, when Lilith was the original goddess who was the creator of the uh, the vampires and was very much a believer in competition and predation as sources of strength and vitality in a species, um, she made the mistake of crossing the wrong group of Lightbringers and was eventually killed by a Lightbringer priestess after she fell to Earth. Who That was Talia, who became the successor and the next vampire queen well what are the the light bringers they are all about order and control and protecting people from the big bad ugly things that live in the dark and so when one of those people then ends up in charge of the big bad ugly things that live in the dark uh-huh. it's I I just am putting this together now. It makes complete sense that that would have caused that shift from being all about oh, we're going to stay on the board, the shadows of society and hunt you to make you stronger to, 
we're going to subtly take control of society and not really tell you that we're doing it. And we're just going to manipulate you into becoming better. (laughs) In my universe, by contrast, you have all of our good guys, i.e. the sympathetic characters. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them is guilty of far worse atrocities than our bad guy is. And our bad guy is not innocent. He's guilty of some pretty awful, nasty things. Shelley. Um, Shelley and his minion Percy. But um, our good guys, we've got, you know, we've got the bounty hunters. We've got Cassie, who's got, who, who's personally eviscerated a number of people, literally. But they probably deserved it. Oh, they probably deserved it. <laughs> they were all bad. <laughs> they were all bad. Yes, exactly. And then we've got Joss, probably the most sympathetic of the characters, and at the same time, though. The war, yes, mm-hmm. not just we we saw in the Man of the Rain how he vivisected two living men in order to get information. We hear in passing about how he also decapitated someone in a bathroom and how he tortured someone by removing their stomach lining Ew. while they were alive. Not a nice man. <laughs> N- not a nice guy. Um, well, you know that. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's cool. Um, But uh, in terms of who's got blood on their hands and who's willing to do what, our bad guys are are marginally less repugnant than our good guys. But they're less sympathetic because they're more willing to do it to people they know, um, among other things. But also because Shelley is in power and he's an agent of a government, that deliberately plays on American sensibilities of of being suspicious and mistrustful of authority. Exactly. And if you look at the characters in my universe, the ones who have the power and have the authority are either demigods who could be trusted with it or they are (laughs) manipulative bastards. But... (laughs) But if you, if you if you step back and do the actual moral calculation, my good guys are good guys because I write from their point of view, not right. because they're good. Um, and that's what Joss says at the end of Man in the Rain when Mondu thanks him for saving his life and says, you're a good man. And he says, I am many things. That isn't among them. <laughs> he knows. He does. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not fighting for anything beyond what is in their their sphere of interest you know, they're not aligned with higher or lower powers they are an evolutionarily competing set of moral paradigms mm-hmm. and part of the journey of antithesis is seeing how those moral paradigms rise and fall next to one another which ones wind up combining symbiotically which ones wind up washing out of the moral gene pool so to speak <laughs> it's interesting one of the things that i've heard said, you know, in in the role-playing world, there are -hmm. are the uh, moral alignments of good, neutral, and evil. And one of the things that has been said is that good is about you, neutral is about we, Mm -hmm. and evil is about me. And I I particularly (laughs) like that that idea. You know, the people who are, you know, in the, the 
quote-unquote neutral camp are the people who are, you know, they're not ambivalent about good and evil, but they are interested in what's good for me and my circle of people who I care about. Mm -hmm. And so they will pursue that interest of that community. And they're not selfless. They're not Mm -hmm. completely altruistic, but they are capable of sacrificing for themselves um, for the sake of the people who matter to them. Which is, I think, where most of hum- the human race tends to fall. It's the people who can't look at anything beyond themselves as being worthy of of preservation and advancement who tend to get categorized as evil. And that's where the inversion is, because antithesis, the, the case is exactly the opposite. The characters that tend to be most directly self-serving are also the characters who are most aware of where their dependencies are upon others. Mm-hmm. And so their self-serving actions tend to have altruistic knock-on effects, mm-hmm. where those who are looking to serve the greater good are the ones who are most dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that you find in Metamore City, too. <laughs> right, but it's not the... Uh, but that's not the... Um, overlying overarching theme right because i've got the other present in you know the sense of what in the last episode joss uh realizes that he's finally bought into the notion that there's something bigger than himself and that's this big character moment trust me it's not a good thing (laughs) or at least not an unambiguously good thing and i'm not doing this because i i'm a selfish bastard and i think selfishness is is a good thing unlike the randites (laughs) unlike the randites i think the randites are completely wrong mm-hmm. um because what they're calling enlightened self-interest is very unenlightened yes. narrow-minded the 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 idea of individual autonomy is bullshit um <laughs> yes and i can't i can't say it any more plainly than that no but, man is an island <laughs> yeah. the idea that humanity can be treated like a strategic block without regards to the individual is also bullshit oh yes so in my universe, sympathetic characters are the ones who are individualists who realize the preciousness and tenuousness of their connections to other people and how they depend on those other people. Mm-hmm. Where the unsympathetic characters are the ones who are either hyper-individualistic or who are completely absorbed in the greater good. Right. Yeah. The greater good is usually neither great nor good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway... That just occurred to me. Differences in moral un- in in moral orientations for the universe. It was a really cool conversation. I'm glad that we recorded it for the rest of you guys to enjoy. Okay, then. So brief break, and then I am going to get back to the feedback. Cool. <laughs> 